Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. I am Dan Scott, your host, one of the grumpy guys, and we've got the full crew together on this episode with a very special guest. You know, we've had a a pretty good run of guests here in the last four shows. If you uh, go back to, uh, well, four shows ago, do the math, right? Uh, began with Jason Whitlock from uh, Fox Sports 1. It uh, continued with Hall of Fame broadcaster Marty Brenneman. The next week, it was Dave Sims, the uh, incredibly versatile and talented TV voice of the uh, Seattle Mariners. And then last time out, it was former Atlanta Braves pitching coach Leo Mazzoni. We continue the guest run today with um, Wes Durham, who is the play-by-play voice of the Atlanta Falcons, formerly of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, also works for the ACC Network and does ACC sports on television as well. Uh, He'll be with us here in just a moment. We'll get a chance to talk a little NFL, a little college football, and some other things with Wes Durham. The podcast is brought to you by our friends at Todaro Pizza. T-O-D-A-R-O, pizza.com is the website. And, uh, boy, good news as we're beginning to get some of the restrictions from the coronavirus slowly lifted. Todaro Pizza in Greenville is now open for in-restaurant dining. They're still doing delivery. They're still doing takeout. But they're now allowing customers back inside on a limited capacity, of course. They also have some outside seating set up. So you get to continue your social distancing, but you can go sit down and enjoy the great pizza. John and his folks over there, excited to have you back in, and we're excited to be telling you about it. TodaroPizza.com is the website. When you come to the upstate, if you're not from here, upstate of South Carolina, they're located at 116 North Markley Street in Greenville, South Carolina. Please make sure that you put that on your must-do food bucket list. Todaro Pizza, T-O-D-A-R-O, pizza.com is the website. As mentioned, this is episode nine of the All Den Podcast. No, it's not the All Den Podcast. That's what I do with Bob Ritchie. This is the Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Uh, been quarantined for so long, I can't even remember what I'm doing now. But we've got the entire band together, Cobb Oxford, is in the house. How you doing, sir? Great. Wonderful. Tom Van Hoy is here. Hanging in there, just like everybody else. And, and the uh, the the conscience of our organization, Dory Kidd-Smith. How are you, Dory? Wow. Good morning. I'm hanging in. Thanks for that. Conscience. That'll keep me going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and, and probably some coffee. Uh, our <laughs> guest, you know, we, we've talked about a uh, the run of guests we've had in the last uh, few episodes, starting with Jason Whitlock. Then Marty Brenneman, then uh, Dave Sims, voice of the Seattle Mariners, and last week Leo Mazzoni. So, not to put any undue pressure on this week's guest, but I think he can handle it. Wes Durham is the play by play voice of the Atlanta Falcons, longtime uh, previous voice of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, among others collegiately, and of course works for the ACC Network, does a show with Mark Packer called Packer and Durham. And for some reason, decided that he would be willing to hang out with us here today. Wes, how are you? I'm great. It's good to be with you guys. Although, uh, as I told you, Dan, a moment ago, when I saw Cobb here, I'm, I'm a little <laughs> hesitant. And now Dory started to load the gun on me a little bit, so now I'm really nervous. Yeah, she is. She is. 
might be more than I asked for during the quarantine, to be quite frank with all of you. Dory has uh, has already given you a preview. She has dipped well into your past, hasn't she? Yeah. She knows some people, and I'm a little concerned because she said <laughs> something. Like and I'm like, wait a second. Not many people are aware of that. So I'm, I'm already concerned a little bit about what Dory's intel might be. Well, we can't, we, we can't wait to find out together. <laughs> Because you should be. I might make you squirm, West Durham, just a little bit. <laughs> I, I think most people know this, but Wes obviously comes from uh, some great bloodlines. Uh, he, he's been doing this for a long time. His brother Taylor uh, is, is the uh, voice uh, at uh, Elon, and, of course, uh, his late father, the legendary Woody Durham, uh, who, who even made people who don't like North Carolina sometimes want to listen to Tar Heel games because that's just the kind of guy he was. Well, I appreciate that very much. He had a uh, he had a remarkable run in Carolina, and the fun part about launching this network has been we've been able to go back in time. Mark and I have on a lot of the people that we think were quote unquote founding fathers of what ACC media is about, um, and not just my dad and, and Mark's dad Billy, but also you know people like Castleman D. Chesley, who started basketball on television essentially in, in North Carolina and in the ACC footprint, but also the great radio voices we had. You know, Jim Phillips, obviously, at Clemson and uh, Wally Osley at North Carolina State and Gene Overby at Wake Forest and guys like that. And it's been fun. It's been that's been kind of part of our mission, method to our madness, if you will, when we uh, when we put the show on the air last August. Well, what uh, what did Mark say Billy's reaction was when Clemson finally won at Chapel Hill this year? Because Billy had famously said he thought he'd never see it in his lifetime. Well, you know, Billy didn't watch the game. I mean, you know, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> the amazing thing about Billy, Mark and I have come to find out that we've basically been cut from a lot of the same cloth, him from Billy and me from my dad. And uh, and we actually have – there's a show that's going to run this Saturday uh, celebrating Michael Jordan uh, and his Carolina career prior to the uh, last two episodes of The Last Dance on Sunday on ESPN. We're running this uh, one-hour show, and we actually have Billy in the show. Billy came over and did like a Zoom. And, of course, that was basically a government contract of computer operation. But um, it was, uh, you know, Billy's got great perspective. He he does, obviously, I mean, he's very proud of the basketball that was played in his era of broadcasting, coaching, and playing. And it's a lot different now. I mean, the game, I mean, the game has changed uh, significantly. And But he, uh, every once in a while, he's get off my lawn type, and that's okay. I, I kind of respect that because my dad was the same way. I I tell people all the time, Kyle's probably heard this story. One of the biggest arguments my dad and I ever had was when the ACC went from 9 to 12 and my mother had to clear us out of their kitchen in Chapel Hill. She said, I am absolutely sick of hearing this. You guys got to take this somewhere else. And he didn't want the ACC to go to 12. And the initial reaction he had was is that, you know, we didn't need to do it. The ACC was fine at 9. We could go to 10, but there was no need to go to 12. And if we went to 12 – you know, we needed to go big and da da da. And I'm like, Dad, you got to understand, 12 has to happen in order for the league to continue to survive. And believe it or not, I'm happy to report he ultimately came around to my way of thinking after about 18 months of 12. And he said, You know what? You were probably right that night in the kitchen. I was like, Yes, I won. I got one. I, I got in the left column on him. Should have retired uh, right there. But he and Billy are basically, you know, they're they're traditionalists and. And any good league needs that, to be honest, Dan. I, I think that that's a that was a big part of 
you know, when you you grow up in the footprint of this league, you have to have people that are proud of the way the league started and the late the way the league germinated. And my dad was certainly one of those people. Yeah, actually, I read that last night. I pulled up a little bit about West Durham online as well. Oh. Uh, so I got a lot of dirt. Um, but anyway, now back to your to your late great dad. So I read about that, and I know that he did concede after a year and a half or so. But ultimately, do you think his way of thinking was in fact right? I mean, didn't the league basically follow the money? Has it paid off, or should we have kind of stuck to our guns back then? I think this is a great parallel, by the way, considering you know the elephant in the room that we're not going to address, and that's what's going on all over the world right now, but you know, sticking to your guns, the traditionalist, the, the old school way of thinking. I like to think all of you guys are cut from the same cloth and we got to keep going with that. So what are your, what is your take on, on what happened with the ACC? I think the ACC during at the time I was, you know, full-time in Atlanta and working at Georgia tech and dad was still doing the games at Carolina. And I think living in Atlanta since 1995 has now given me the perspective of understanding that we're kind of at the crossroads in this marketplace of college athletics, of major college athletics. Um, I happened to be at Vanderbilt the first year the SEC went to 12 when they added Arkansas and South Carolina. I started doing Vanderbilt that year. I, I saw what happened when the SEC went to 12. Um, I also saw that there was going to be trouble in the Midwest and in the Southwest with Texas and the rest of the Big 12. I felt like the ACC, in order to take the next step in football, and, and let's be honest now, we're starting to see even in this pandemic that football is a much more valuable product across the board in major college athletics than basketball or really any other sport. And I think in order for the ACC to survive, it had to expand its footprint. The most logical way for the ACC to expand its footprint was not east to west, it was north to south. And I thought there were valuable markets for them to control. Um, the original idea of Syracuse and Boston College in Miami on paper was a very, very good deal. Now, it just so happened that Syracuse couldn't quite get to the table and Virginia Tech ended up, you know, there was a whole play in, in terms of politics in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we ended up with Virginia Tech, when at the time, very controversial, but at the end, probably the right move, because you had to get three really good football teams. And you did. You got BC, Miami, and Virginia Tech. And then on the relapse, you got Syracuse, you got Pittsburgh, and you got Louisville, and the IPL on Notre Dame. So while a traditionalist in me or a historian in me might have wanted to stay at nine, I don't think the league could have survived it. Not. I just don't believe that basketball was going to have enough in the bucket to carry the till opposite these leagues that were going to grow to 12, 14. And I think ultimately down the road, we're going to see 16 team leagues. In college right. 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 I think you're right. Yeah. Business. It's business drives everything. You know, and <laughs> politics doesn't just exist in the political arena. You guys know there are a lot of politics played in every industry. So thank you for that. I, I agree. We've got to keep that in mind. Yeah, but before Cobb and, and, and Tom uh, jump in here, I, I got to let a little bit of my, my West Virginia redneck roots uh, pop out here, Wes, because uh, when they, when they did the second round of expansion and you, and you mentioned the teams that, that came in there with Louisville and, and Syracuse, there, there was some talk about WVU coming in. And I know television markets play a big role in all of this. 
uh, they ended up with Pittsburgh, and 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 that's fine. But right. but but uh, someone, and I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was John Swafford, but someone in a in a uh, a a position of authority in the ACC made the comment that West Virginia academically did not fit with the ACC's mission statement. And I thought to myself, you know. Say what you want to about Morgantown, but it's all—it's a school that does have a, a, a law school and a medical school. Academically, I think it does fine. That—that that, I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. That irked me a little bit when when that comment was made. I understand maybe the TV market, but the academic thing was a fraud as far as I was concerned. Well, I think there's a lot of different plays that get. I, first of all, we're seeing it a little bit right now. Because, Dan, to be honest with you, we got a lot of people that are making comments about when college football is going to be played and how college football is going to be played and the dynamics of college football, who, quite frankly, it's May. They don't need to worry about that comment for at least 45 days. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we've got a lot of people that are willing to step to the microphone and offer a time store opinion for a $10 problem. OK, and, and the idea is that we need to absolutely just listen to the health and medical people. And I would say the same thing about that. We're very quick now for the pool of speculation. I mean, uh, I always joke about the shallow and the deep end of speculation. We got a lot of people willing to do a cannonball into the deep end of the pool of speculation right now and just offer up a splash. And I'm not necessarily sure that didn't happen when the era you're talking about. I mean, I can tell you right now that, and I know you had Marty on here, uh, Marty Brenneman, he and I have had conversations about how hurt the people in Cincinnati are that the University of Cincinnati wasn't considered strongly for the ACC. And and they presented, uh, I cannot remember the president's name off the top of my head, but they presented a calculated uh, document that was based on academics and, oh, by the way, here's our athletic footprint. So, look, I, I'm one of those guys that, by the way, doesn't believe we're done. I think down the road, whenever we get back to whatever normal looks like in this world, I'm still not convinced that every major conference in this country is not 16 teams by the time we're finished with all this. Episode 9 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters, Wes Durham is our guest. Cobb, Tom, Cobb, you've been uncharacteristically silent. Well, there's a lot of – I'm just taking it all in. Um, Falcons draft, what's your analysis? Uh, I know there was some uh, criticism of, you know, the number one pick because he had his worst game. Right. and then the last pick, the punter out of Syracuse, which I, I, I like the pick. I love the pick. You've seen yeah. the, the kid's a weapon. Yeah. So, what do you think? I'm, I'm okay with the draft. I, I thought they had to be very, very uh, deliberate in what they were going to do. I never thought they were going to trade up. Uh, I think a lot of people thought they might trade back, Cobb. Um, I was one of those guys that if they had a chance to take somebody – and get, a, get another second-round pick out of it, they would have. Uh, I like A.J. Terrell. I agree with you. He had a bad night in New Orleans, but elsewise he had a really good couple of years, uh, and I'm okay with that. I, uh, I like the linebacker out of Fresno because he plays in space and he's incredibly athletic. I like the defensive uh, end slash tackle out of Auburn. Um, I've got no problem with the pocket safety they took from Cal, the uh, Childs kid. I think they're going to be fine. The punter is the one that Dave Archer, who does the games with, and we both said when they took him, that's a steal. It is. It that is. Guy, that guy can go to the 
he can go to the Pro Bowl next year. It I mean, looks like a howitzer. It is unbelievable. And he kicked – I had him in a ball game, uh, and I probably did 10 Syracuse games in Sterling Hoffrichter's career, maybe more, um, just because of the cards I got dealt in my assignments. But he uh, <laughs> he tried a 61-yard field goal one time that was wide right. Uh, I mean, he's not going to – he's going to be a really, really good pro player. I think that's a – that's a tremendous pick in the seventh round by the Falcons. Well, the game that Clemson eked out that ended up being the key game, um, he kept them inside the 20 all day long. And, I mean, it was like 50, 50, 50, hang time of – I mean, hang time was – you didn't think the ball was ever going to come down. Yeah, and I think, I think that's one of the things that got lost when he got drafted. And uh, it's funny, when they drafted him, Arch and I both texted each other the bomb emoji – on the phone because of what the guy does. So, you know, I, I joked with uh, Dan Quinn about a week ago. I said, the seventh round pick is a, is a winner. And he goes, no kidding. I said, what do you see? He said, we, the tape is unbelievable. They actually saw the kid at the combine and couldn't believe how much he validated the tape. And when they compared the two, that's how some, that's how some prospects actually run up the draft board. So I told Dan before, I was excited to get him. I told Dan before we went on in the immortal words of Vince Dooley, Vanderbilt has a punter who can truly dominate the game. <laughs> That's great. Tom Van Hoy. I'll tell you, if I, if I leave the premises here, it's because I got two kids with Chromebooks doing e-learning. My wife's working from home. We got five electronic devices that are going at once. So if I go away, that's not a big deal. Just wanted to ask, uh, well, Wes, first of all, I'm a Big 12 guy. My dad was – or my grandfather was the head football coach at the University of Kansas – we could spend five hours on Missouri being the SEC and Nebraska being the Big Ten, but I'll leave that alone. I just wanted to ask you, as, as a play-by-play guy most of my life, uh, and your dad is, is a, a legendary play-by-play guy, at what point did you uh, want to get involved in sports casting, and uh, how did you develop your own style, and with, particularly with your dad right in the same room there? That's a really good question. Um, I think most guys that get in this business come to it from – they realize there's a ceiling on whatever they might consider their respective athletic careers. Um, mine occurred probably at about 14 years old. Um, <laughs> for one reason or another, the good Lord blessed me to be six feet tall and 185 pounds at 12. I never quite figured out why I was going to be big. And for about a year and a half, I thought I was going to be the next big six, 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 seven swing forward in the NFL or in the NBA rather. Uh, the dirty little secret is I only played one year of high school football, um, but I played basketball all the way through high school competitively and loved it. But I went to a camp when I was 14 years old and a kid who later played at Virginia, who was going into the seventh grade, was named Richard Morgan. And uh, we were at camp together and we're doing one of those Carolina fast break drills in Chapel Hill. And I was the backside of the three on two defensively. And I turned around and looked up, and Richard Morgan's knees hit me in the head as he dumped it. And, Tom, to be honest with you, I came back from camp that week, and Dad said, how was camp? I said, I don't know, but I don't think this basketball thing's going to go very far. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, I just got dunked on by a kid going in the seventh grade. Um, but that – I don't know that that was the light being turned on. As I got to about 14 or 15 years old, I knew I wanted to be in radio TV. Okay. Uh, I thought I wanted to be in sports. Um, 
I was really geared that way. I love the I love watching my I went to games with my dad. I sat in the press box at Kingdon Stadium behind him from the time I was 13 until I was golly. I mean, I've sat in the stands at Kingdon Stadium twice since I was 12 years old. So there you go. Um, I uh, I just always fell in love with the environment. And he's, to this day, still a very huge influence on what I do from a preparation and execution standpoint. But the best advice my dad ever gave me was to, you know, put your stuff to other people, talk to other announcers, uh, branch out. Don't just, you know, see what I do and call it the gospel. Find other people. And, you know, the biggest blessing of my career professionally has been friendships with Larry Munson, Jim Phillips, um, you know, the relationships I have now with guys in the Big Ten, Don Fisher at Indiana, Matt LaPay at Wisconsin, Gary Dolphin at Iowa, Paul Keels at Ohio State. I mean, those those guys are, are gold to me. And um, I, I, I consider some of my best personal friends to be unbelievable broadcasters. Stan Cotton and Wake Forest and I have known each other 35 years, 36 years. And so those kinds of things have, have really impacted my career in a lot, a lot of ways. And, I mean, I spent – Time on the phone yesterday with Adam Amin for about 45 minutes talking about his new world and things like that. So all those things come in to influence your work on the air as well as off the air. I think. You got a good Munson story? Not that I can tell on this podcast. <laughs> all, the good, all the good ones have to be told in closed door rooms with no legal authorities. <laughs> Like eight cups of coffee during. Uh, I, will, I will say this: the best, the best experience I ever had with Larry that um, was he always used to call me when Georgia Tech would play at Georgia, and he was still doing the games. I'd get a phone call about Wednesday or Thursday of the game, and our friendship started when I was at Vanderbilt, and then it just exploded when I came to Atlanta to work at Georgia Tech. So we're going over there to play in 2000, and I get a phone call on Wednesday. And the phone rings at like 7.45 in the morning. And I will say this, the greatest gift that we ever had in life was if Larry Munson ever left you a voicemail because it was a stream of consciousness. So he called me and goes, oh, what time are you going to get over here? I said, well, the game's at like noon or so. I said, we'll probably get there at 8. Okay, I'll meet you at 8. I'm like, 8? Hey, good Lord, he's going to be there. We're getting there four hours ahead of time. And we walked in at 8 o'clock, and he's sitting there. I mean, he goes, where you been? I'm like, I told you, 8. And he goes, let's go walk. And he and I then proceeded to spend the next 90 minutes walking around Sanford Stadium into the tailgates and things like that. And I might as well have been, you know, his nephew or somebody. He, they, People were coming up and talking to him. He goes, you want to talk to Durham? They had no idea who I was. They didn't care. <laughs> they were talking to legendary Larry Munson. And he goes, it's good to get out and walk before the game. I'm like, okay, it's good. We'll get out and walk before the game. And he's just – he was a gracious guy. Fascinating story. Tony oh. Barnhart wrote an unbelievable book about him. Um, played piano in Minnesota uh, after he got out of the service for Frank Sinatra. Uh, first radio job, Dan. He was hired by Kurt Gowdy in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's just an American dream uh, to become what he did – but those guys were – those guys, Bob Fulton at South Carolina is another one. He, he and Jim Fife and Eli Gold at Alabama, John Ward at Tennessee. When I got the Vanderbilt job at 26, Tom, those guys were as nice to me as anybody I could have ever expected. And it was just an incredible experience. I've been very blessed in that life. Cobb and I had the 
the pleasure of interviewing Larry right after he retired when he released his book. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, from, from Herschel to a hobnail boot on the old yeah. radio show, and and uh, th- that that was entertaining in and of itself. I, I wanted to kind of follow up on the radio part of it. I, I was about two weeks into my first radio job at 18 years old in my hometown in, in Williamson, West Virginia, and a, our midday guy uh, told me, he said, be careful if this business gets in your blood You'll never get it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sitting here looking at Tom, who's been doing it for longer than I have. Did did, did you have the same love-hate relationship with radio? Um, no. Mine was um, – I just – I wanted to do play-by-play. I, I, didn't, I didn't care how I did it. I wanted to build boards. I wanted to go through the media guides. I mean, people ask me now about doing games, and I love doing games, but I love the prep. I'm a – I'm a goon for the prep. I mean, every year at NSMA, they always everybody brings their charts and they set them in stacks. And people will come by and look at me going, what are you doing? I always like looking at what people do. I, I love the prep. I like looking at charts and seeing if I can steal something from somebody. Um, now, the moments and the, and the momentum of a game and the rhythm of a game is, is pretty unique. And that that is intoxicating, Dan, to me. Um I think the, the one thing that keeps coming back to me is I'm always laughing at guys who play and then go do games. Like Roddy Jones, who I now do TV with, I did his games. And when he went to work with Brandon Gordon on the Georgia Tech games, I told Roddy, I said, the first game you do, when you're done, you're going to feel like you played. And I'm always amazed at guys that go and do games. And Taj Boyd's the latest one. I can give you this story. Taj does his first game. He's worn out when he's finished. I mean, they're, he's done. He's baked. They feel like they've worked out. they played. I think that's what it's like for us. And I think we build up a uh, an immune system to it, if you will, that we just get in the moment and then the moment's over. Former players that go and play can't believe how mentally taxed they are when the game is done, though. How do you double prep? I mean, you've got – you go into a weekend. You're, you're in Syracuse Saturday. You might be in San Francisco on Sunday. I mean, how do you – I guess a lot of your playing time is spent with your prep, but I mean, you got to start on Monday getting ready for the weekend, don't you? Yeah, there, there's um, and now you know, compounded with the show and living in Charlotte and things like that, it's it's kind of different. Um, when I'm in Cartersville with Vicky, you know, I kind of go into my hole on Monday and do certain things Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, <clears throat> and then when I went to television, I left Thursday night. Cobb, I I used to, I. I still leave on Thursday nights because I think Friday morning is too valuable to burn if you're not in the market where your game is on Saturday. So we have meetings on Friday, don't you? Anyway, you do, but I want to wake up Friday morning in the city I'm broadcasting in Saturday rather than trying to travel Friday morning because I surely I found out pretty quick that America moves on Friday morning at an airport. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the the idea for me is my dad taught me discipline. My dad, the one thing he gave me without ever saying what it was, was Monday probably is this, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then by the time you're ready to go Thursday. And there's a there's a long process for another podcast one day where, you know, I'll tell you how, like, when I leave on Thursday nights, the last thing I do is print out the depth chart and the notes for the teams that the Falcons or the game I'm doing the next Saturday so that I take them in a file and when I come home on Sunday night or whatever the case may be, I've already got that file ready, and Monday morning it's sitting there ready to go, and all I have to do is pull the stats from the weekend. And, you 
uh, needless to say, I'm uh, I'm bound to the internet, and there there are about five or six websites that if they ever go down, I'm done. I mean, I'll <laughs> try and figure out how to do math on a you know, calculator or something. So, and you are good at math. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm brilliant at math. Yeah, awful. Well, you are Absolutely good at awful. Well, one thing you one thing you have found out is you never know where Mark Packer's coming from, right? Well, you know, I have uh, I have said this, and I will continue to say this. He is the singularly most talented person I have ever worked with in a talk format. I shared it with him for three years. His mind works totally different. I've never seen anything like it. Um, all the stuff that people have seen uh, on social media platforms since we've been quarantined are all Mark Packer generated ideas from the Kentucky Derby to the top 10 list to the, you know, the things that are still to come. And we're going to start doing one hour shows here on Zoom, believe it or not, uh, week after next. And some of the content on those shows is, uh, you know, he wa I've got a farm that's 120 some years old outside my house here in Cartersville. It's not mine, and I don't have anything to do with it, by the way, but it's just our backyard. And Mark's like, well, why don't you just wander around out there in the farm field for a while? I'm like, no, that wouldn't. that's not entertaining for anybody. But I'm sure by the time, the longer we keep doing this, the more we're going to find out that he's got some idea germinated out of it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Dory, you had started to say something? Oh, well, I was just going to say he may not be good at math, but he's definitely good at impersonation. So after we've heard the Larry Munson impersonation, can we have a Joe Cox impersonation? Joe Cox. Okay. Now you're really down in the hole. Well, uh, I'm really interested in these stories well, from Joe the mid-80s. Joe Cox is not the former Georgia quarterback of the same name, by the way. Right. Um, Joe Cox was a man who rented – now I know – I've now narrowed the field on who you know. Um, <laughs> Joe Cox was a gentleman who – had a double-wide trailer in Burlington, North Carolina, that he rented to me, and uh, now I may be centering on who you know. Uh, <laughs> one of my college roommates and I for our senior year, and uh, Joe Cox was a – at the time we rented it from him, I think he was close to 90 years old, and uh, <clears throat> he had a, uh, a farmer's market, so to speak, a curb market. Remember curb markets? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he had a curb market on old Highway 70 in Burlington. And uh, one of our other roommates uh, was a social director, if you will. Uh, he was the lady's choice in town during uh, his stint living with us. And uh, his girlfriend used to kind of stay in the trailer quite a bit. And Mr. Cox thought it was, her si was his sister. <laughs> You're talking about that person as though it wasn't you. Are you it sure wasn't, that wasn't you? No, you weren't the me. social director? No, nor was okay. it the person who I think you know. Uh, it was the other guy who lived with us in the fall. Gotcha. And, and he used to come over and say, uh, hey, it's, it's sure is good that Jimmy's sister spent so much time with him. I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> it's so great. My, uh, my other roommate, who I think Dory knows now that I've kind of centered into these stories, my other roommate came in and said, you're not going to believe this. Joe Cox thinks Caldwell's girlfriend is his sister. I said, well, that means she's going to be here all the time. Then. So, and, in fact, she stayed basically the rest of the semester. Yeah. 
We are in the South, so I guess that was acceptable. But no, Joe Cox was actually the SID's grandfather, correct? The SID at yeah, the SID at Elon, uh, was the late Bill Grubbs, and Joe was his grandfather. Right. And he rented us the trailer for under like $200 a month. And under $200 a month in the late 1980s was a bargain by any stretch. And it rained so hard one night that I think we had to towel every crack in the trailer to keep from being washed away. But it worked for, you know, if you're a college senior, it worked. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't awful for one year. But Oh, I heard it was the place to be. Um, it had its moments. <laughs> no it comment. Moments. Yeah. Okay, so I want to sort of switch gears. We mentioned it earlier, and that was um, just sort of being, I guess, exclusive in a way. We were talking about the conference. But let's talk about academics, um, and I know we can revisit this time and time again, and I'm just curious what your stance is now with the one and done or, you know, the, the players who are not going to college for college. They're going to get a stepping stone into professional sports. Well, I think the difference, Dory, in, in the transition from college to the pros is different in the two sports. I think the relationship with college football and the National Football League is far better than the relationship between college basketball and the NBA. Um, and I think all of that, believe it or not, hinges on the fact of the NCAA's rule and the relationship between the NBA Players Association and the NCAA. Uh, I think we need a czar in college basketball worse than we need a czar in college football. Everybody keeps talking about we need one voice in college football. Well, we need one voice in college basketball far worse. Most of America doesn't pay attention to college basketball except for three and a half weeks a year. And that's the bigger concern I have. I think too many games, coaches don't want to hear this. I think there are way too many games. I think the season starts way too early. Um, and it's hard for the American sporting public in the day and age we live in to lock down to college teams unless you're already invested one way or another. I think if, unless you're a fan of a certain school, I think college basketball just on the surface is increasingly more difficult to follow than it's ever been. Tom Van Horn. If you add name and likeness to the equation, <clears throat> where you see that, how is that going to get handled? I mean, I, I know the likeness to me, and I'm not an attorney, don't play one on radio or TV. Um, I think name and likeness is a 1% situation. Right. I think name and likeness affects very few people at very few institutions. Um, I think there are inherently going to be issues with it. Um, and I think the one thing to remember for people who follow college athletics as we do is that the NCAA was forced into this. The NCAA did not ever want to go to this. They had no intention. But in order for them to maintain control of the Power Five, they're trying to do it. And they're trying to lead the way on it. And in my opinion, the commissioners have countered by asking the federal government to set up the guidelines for it. And the NCAA doesn't want the Fed involved. That's why they produced the guidelines. But the commissioners have countered by saying we'd like the Fed to set up the guidelines. And I think that's going to be beautiful when we get to that point. Oh, boy. I'm not, I'm not convinced in this world, folks, that we're not headed to the separation of the NCAA and the Power Five. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. Think, I think we're, we're already on that road, mm -hmm. and the traffic's just going to get faster as we move along here. 
where I don't understand about name and likeness, my rub is you got a Trevor Lawrence that obviously will be able to cash checks. What do you do about the third string offensive tackle? He's not going to cash checks. So no. I think there's going to be locker room issues, team issue. I mean, it's just something else coaches are going to have to deal with. I don't disagree with that, but I also think, too, that there's a better way to – create the model than what we've seen so far in order to do that you can't have the um of the 130 odd schools playing division one fbs football this is not an applicable scenario to about more than about i mean there may be a guy at quote um eastern michigan one right but this is really a power five this this is a top 72 situation. You know, like a lot of people in, in the sports talk business years ago, I made a lot of predictions and very few of them came true. But somewhere around 2002 or 2003, I remember saying on the old talk show that that we were headed to a scenario in, in the future where the big schools were going to eventually break away from the NCAA West. And, and to hear you say that, it just kind of reinforces – my belief that that's where we're headed. I, I think it's inevitable simply because of everything that's at stake financially, and the the Power Five conferences are not going to want to be limited, for lack of a better term, by what the NCAA will or will not allow them to do. I think that's 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 a real premise in the in the whole deal, Dan. Um, I think there's so many tentacles to this, and so many different streets that that's why you have to have ultimate faith in the five commissioners and Jack Swarbrick. Um, I think you also have to look at the council of presidents that run the college football playoff. I think the membership of that committee becomes very important. I think you have to look at the strong presidents and leaders of these institutions in the various leagues. Um, And I got to be honest with you. I think the athletic directors right now in the ACC and the administrators in the ACCs from the presidents and, chancellor's office are showing you during the pandemic uh, that they're willing to work as collaboratively as possible on trying to get things right. And I think you've got to remember there are a lot of things at play in the pandemic to getting football back that ultimately affect kind of how that road you're talking about is paved. And I think that comes down to the state you're in, the school you're with, whether you're a public institution with state funding or you're a private institution like a a Wake Forest, a Syracuse, a Miami, um, you know, how does that work? How does Notre Dame play into this? Notre Dame has an IPO until 2036, right? I mean, if Notre Dame wants to join the league, the ACC is going to be the league. I'll go back to where Tom's heritage is. What is What does the landscape look like if all of a sudden Nebraska decides the Big Ten's not the fit they thought it was, right? And the Big 12 wants to go to 16, West Virginia. If, if in this economy we come out of the pandemic and West Virginia realizes that they're spending seven or eight times more off their budget on being a member of the Big 12 than they could be by being a, quote, member of the ACC or whatever league, the SEC, what does that look like? How does the scheduling factors come back into this? And I'm going to be honest with you. We're getting ready to walk into a school year and a unique athletic year like we've never seen in the modern era. I mean – it's, it's going to be a real sign of what the rest of the 21st century of college athletics potentially could look like. And I don't think everybody realizes that. I, I mean, 
I don't know what it's like in South Carolina, but I know what it's like in Georgia. They're talking about sports at major higher education institutions canceling games that are being played in one other time zone, let alone two other time zones. I know baseball teams that were supposed to go across the country to play that aren't going to go next year, and now all of a sudden they're going to play a three-game series where they get on a bus and ride an hour. I mean, it's that's the kind of economics we're talking about in major college athletics. And along the way during this, we're going to have to come up with some clean solutions, and everybody's going to have to kind of understand Hey, look, this is the new way we're doing business. And that's going to lead, I think, to what you're talking about 15 years ago. And that's the that's the recreation of what major college athletics, I think, ultimately looks like. Because right now it, 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 it seems like it's almost like the federal government to a certain extent. They can just print money when they want to print money. Uh, and, and they rely so much on television revenue to spark all of this stuff. And, and boy, you hit right on it. We don't know what this landscape is going to look like this fall. We don't know how much of that television revenue is going to be there and how that's going to affect everything else. And and we may be headed, I, I hope we're not, but we may be headed to an every man, every school, every conference for himself type of scenario. Well, and, and here's the other thing, too. And, again, and this is from talking to a variety of different people. These are all 501c3s in theory. Every one of these athletic departments is a 501c3. They have that arm in their athletic department to which they raise money, right? I mean, that part of this is undergoing a real transformation right now. I mean, you know, University of Cincinnati canceled a uh, wrestling program. Uh, Florida Tech, which I think was Division Two, abolished football yesterday. I mean, there are going to be a lot of hard decisions that get made here in the next – 90 days that probably aren't going to be real comfortable for a lot of institutions, but they don't have a choice. I mean, I'll be honest with you. There's grave concern in the country that I think there are some major institutions that financially could go bankrupt if there's not college football. That's a scary thought based on the monster that's been created by the sport in the last 25 years. And and then maybe before Tom jumps in here, take that and then apply it to a school like I work for at Furman. Uh, or, or smaller schools that don't have the major television dollars to rely on and rely on gate receipts and rely on, on everything else. I, I mean, the world that we're walking into right now is, is so much unknown, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and the other part, too, and I'll just add this. The first thing that will have to happen for these places to keep their doors open, and this is not what an institution like a Furman or where I went to school at Elon wants to hear, is they're going to have to reduce tuition to make it more economical for people to continue to attend the universities or the schools. That's not what any of those places want to hear. They want that gradual increase in tuition, and that may not be possible for a handful of years because of where the economy is and the number of people not working in this country. It all goes hand in hand, but again, we're on a road that nobody's ever seen before. We haven't seen it in the modern era. We've seen it, but it was 100 years ago, and now I think that when it starts to affect athletics, and like I don't know who Furman's uh, FBS opponent is this fall, Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. That game right now. Yeah. Do we know that game's going to get played? Just like Elon's supposed to play Duke. Do we know that game's going to get played? I mean, there's a lot of unknowns right now about where college football is, and that ultimately affects the bank account of a lot of schools not in the quote Power Five. Tom. Yeah, Wes. Can you see? conferences changing at all from a realignment standpoint based on the fact now that, you know, 
you, you don't want to want to go to New Jersey Institute of Technology. I mean, I look at the regional uh, rivalries when I was growing up in the Midwest. You don't have a lot of those anymore. Wichita State, you know, goes to the AAC, and you're looking at Charleston, you're looking at Davidson, all those. They can still be in the Southern Conference to a certain extent. You see any of that ever happening down the road as far as maybe getting back get to a more regional situation? Tom, I'm not sure that anything's off the table at this point. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things that are in play. Um, do I see, you know, do I see the regionalization? I see the regionalization of a lot of sports. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that if there's – and look, I'm all for equal in this. This is not a an indictment of where we are with Title IX as it relates to other sports. But, I mean, the expense cost that is uh, – I can't tell you the number of times I sat in the meetings and heard the expenses that were being shelled out for sports that – that quite frankly, don't make a dollar. I don't know how much the business influence is going to affect the, the overall experience. Um, and again, I'll go back to the cost of the scholarship. I mean, you know, all of us have spent time in and around college campuses. The cost of putting a young person in a higher education environment right now is amazing. I mean, my daughter just graduated from Florida State. My son is a rising senior at Kennesaw State. Um, and I'm just the guy paying, you know, the tuition room and board for them to go to school. I'm not I'm not responsible as an athletic department for the overall scholarship experience, plus the uh, cost of attendance, plus the whatever else might be germinated. I mean, you know, for us to think it's under one hundred thousand dollars is fuel, foolish now on a power five level. I mean, I it's easily one hundred thousand dollars almost for every student athlete, I would think, in, in major college athletics at this point. Please. So let me ask you one other question about Elon. Yeah. I go back so far that I broadcast the 1981 NAIA Division I National Championship game in, in Burlington that day. And then I flew back and I did a basketball game that night. I just wondered if you had any multi-game broadcast in different cities at any point in your career. Um, the first year I did the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, the Falcons played in Tampa at one o'clock and Georgia Tech played Georgia in basketball at Alexander Coliseum at seven o'clock that night. Mm -hmm. And I did the game in Tampa at one o'clock. And Mr. Blank, the owner of the Falcons, was nice enough to fly me home right after the football game was over. And I walked into Alexander Coliseum 90 minutes before the basketball game started. And Paul Hewitt looked at me and said, I know big time when I see it. <laughs> and uh, and Mr. Blank has been awfully, awfully good to Dave Archer and I. When we've been in tough spots from a travel perspective, he, is, uh, he has bailed us out more than once on a couple of occasions to get us from point A to point B. I've actually – I did two games in two separate cities one time. That was the only time I've done that. Um, when I was doing the Falcons and Georgia Tech, at the same time, Atlanta played football games and Georgia Tech had basketball games where I literally got in the car to Georgia Dome and drove seven blocks and got out to Coliseum to do a game. So that that part was easy. The the Tampa back to Atlanta for the basketball was a little bit more of a trick. And, um, you know, it didn't hurt that people found out about it, although I didn't advertise it a lot either. So, But it was that was fun to do. And it's, yeah. it's great fun. It's great fun. I mean, I two at a time. I was going to say, I ended up three times in my career that I've broadcast three games, two cities in the same day. I mean, yeah. all in football. It's, it's, uh, I think Dan and I both, uh, you're probably a member of the Million Mile Club flying. Dan and I are, are, are uh, members of the Million Mile Driving Club. Yeah. Yes. 
I was in, uh, I got I, when I was at Elon and doing and doing radio at Elon. I, I became about a million miler driving around doing football and basketball when I was a student. My dad did the uh, Continental Tire Bowl at the time in Charlotte, and Carolina had a basketball game in Chapel Hill that night, and. Uh, he kept telling me about this great state patrol setup he had. I said, well, you need a plane. He goes, don't go big time in me. I said, no, I'm not big time. I just want you to get there on time. And uh, my mom said, well, you should have heard him bitching about the highway patrolman not going fast enough getting him out of Charlotte. Now, he made the game. But I'm like, I told him he should have gotten that plane. So there you go. Yep. We are uh, blessed to have Wes Durham with us here on Episode 9 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters, uh, Dan Scott. Tom Van Hoy, Cobb Oxford, Dory Kidd-Smith, the whole gang uh, is here for uh, this episode. Uh, Wes, you may or may not want to get into this. It's my job to ask the questions, and then we can find out how good you can tap dance. But um, the the, uh, the reports coming out this, uh, this week uh, and late last week on Zion Williamson and uh, the possibility that he took mul- uh, money from multiple shoe companies to play at Duke and, or his parents did, or somebody surrounding him did. And, and the negative light that's cast on him and, and Mike Krzyzewski and by extension, ACC basketball. What are your thoughts about all this? Um, I think if you're going to be the number one player in the country and you're going to have people represent your interest, you better know who's representing them. Um, and you better have a really good business team. I think it's one of the things that's critical in today's major college athletics. It's one of the things I've talked to. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give you the names, but I've talked to eight or 10 guys who were or going to be first round draft picks about making sure they know who's around them. And you need to make sure. And, and I'm telling you, that's part of the process of a, of a really good coach and a really good program that the kid goes with is not just, hey, I want to go play football at School X because School X plays for the national championship or, you know, Team Y plays in the Final Four every year. They need to know who the program is around them and the kind of kind of people that can answer questions of things they may have prior to or in their senior year of high school and their freshman year of college if they're only going to be there one year for basketball or three years for football. I think it's all a really big piece of, of major college athletics and – I think, unfortunately, for Zion and his family, they may have gotten wrapped up with the wrong people and may not have had – and I think you've got to have lawyers. you got to have lawyers to look at other lawyers. I mean, when you're dealing with that kind of property, and he is a property, you need to make sure it's being governed the right way. And, Cobb, I'm going to tell you, this is going to be interesting because I don't know how far it reaches. I don't think any of us do. Uh, is this somebody who is threatening court just to get settled? Or is this somebody that really wants to depose people and put them on the stand? I mean, we're going to find out, but um, somebody made a bad mistake along the way. And uh, for all the good that he brought. Somebody somebody didn't get paid. I mean, this sounds like an agent maybe got done wrong or didn't get the deal they wanted. So, yeah, any of it's possible. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting and it'll be a lesson for all of us in, in the way that we're in, in, you know, we we're talking about commissioners for college football and commissioners for college basketball. Here's another good example of the way we need to protect the young people if they're going to play in the college game because they're an investment in the institutions as well as the program and the product that America sees. Well, to that end, then, do, do we applaud the, uh, the two or three 
high-profile college basketball players we've seen just in the last month who have said, you know what, I'm not even going to go to college. I'm going to take the G League paycheck and start my professional career now. Well, that $500,000, as we were talking about earlier, is not for everybody. Um, it's only going to be for a select few. And that's the thing to remember about that portion of the program. I think the other thing you have to keep in mind along those lines is, too, that um, that the G League is is taking advantage of a loophole. They, want, they don't want those kids going to Australia or other foreign countries for a year just to burn the calendar when they can pay them basically what they're making over there and go ahead and integrate them into their system. Um, and I think personally, Sharif Abdurrahim, who runs the G League, is it, that's a stroke of genius on his part. And if he's able to work with the college game, it ends up being better because here's what I'd like to see out of the college game to answer your question. I don't want to see the kid make the mistake who leaves the college game, stays in the draft, doesn't get drafted, and ends up nickel-diming it in Ukraine or whatever the case may be. I want to see the G League take the kid that might not be drafted out of the college game and at least put something in his pocket and keep the product on, you know, keep the product on our turf as opposed to sending the kid across the ocean somewhere to play in a foreign country where the horror stories of kids playing pro ball in Europe. Everybody hears about the glorious seven figures they pay for the house, the car, the, you know, the butler, the whatever. You don't hear about the guy that doesn't get paid. And that story's out there a hell of a lot more than the guy that makes the seven figures. So, I'm of the belief that the G League situation is actually good because those college kids are just going to burn the line anyway for the most part, and for $500,000, the NBA gets what they're going to get ultimately. Dory? I, I think excellent advice, West Durham. I think we need an advice uh, book written maybe for our 16-, 17-, 18-year-old boys or you know, athletes, student-athletes coming into – this crazy world. I do want to mention, yes, we do have a mutual friend in Jim Duncan, but my <laughs> father also is a mutual uh, acquaintance. He actually was at the 2009 Orange Bowl, and he and Ken Boniface spoke with you oh, yeah. at halftime of the Orange Bowl. Yeah. So he sent me a list of questions. We're not going to get to those. I mean, we could talk to you all day. Um, the fact you know Jim Duncan, the fact you know Jim Duncan, who's been a friend of mine since I was like 19, right. um, you, you've got state's evidence on me at any point if you know Jim Duncan. Yeah, so, I do. And it's yeah, all yeah. great. I've yeah, heard nothing been, but wonderful things. And, yes, it is Jim Duncan. He's a dear. You've been very well behaved given you have state's evidence, by the way. What's that? You've been very well behaved given you have state's evidence. Yeah, I'll take the rest offline. We'll go out and have a drink or something. Um, but, no, I wanted to ask you, this may, and again, I know that Dan said you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but I'm curious about what's going on behind closed doors at the ACC Network. I mean, I know you're in Atlanta, but you also have a place in Charlotte. You work for the ACC Network. What Are we just rolling with whatever's going to happen, or is anyone willing to take a firm stance and say this is, this is actually the direction we're going to start heading. Well, I think the first thing you have to remember is, is that the entire Walt Disney Company, and in particular ESPN, which obviously oversees the SEC, the ACC, and, and Longhorn Networks, um, those studios have basically been under state's orders in Connecticut and in North Carolina since they were implemented by their governors. Um, that is affecting the production of our show because our show is produced out of Bristol. Um, and right now, the limitations on the number of people being allowed back in those buildings on the ESPN campus has a lot to do with why we're not on the air. Um, 
the Walt Disney Company is pretty serious from what I understand uh, about when we do go back that we're going to implement a lot of the things that have been done. You've seen Sports Center being done from, you know, they're obviously six feet apart, maybe more. Uh, they did the draft process with a lot of remotes. Um, and it's our goal, as best I can tell you, Dory, is that we're going to get back up and going as soon as we're allowed to. Um, I can't speak for the folks in Charlotte because our show's not done from Charlotte. It's done out of Bristol. Um, and we're going to try and do some Packer and Durham things next week that are linear. Um, as I said earlier, I think all ACC is going to try and do some linear shows. We've already done one that's a best of with basketball. Um, and that's the goal. We're, we're doing exactly what kind of – I would equate it to what Mike Greenberg's doing in the morning on Get Up where he's the one in studio and everybody else is spread out. Um, and a credit to the people at ESPN. They've done more with the remote process than I think they ever envisioned doing. And the technological people have been, um, have been amazing. Uh, in fact, the guy that ultimately oversaw the installation of Packers basement has been uh, hero one on this for ESPN. He's the guy that's gone around the country and set up the technology. Um, and the technology, believe it or not, is slightly more advanced than the five of us collaborating here on a Zoom call. <laughs> um, he, uh, he's, done, he's done yeoman's work on just trying to get this whole process put together. I think that's our goal. Um, I have no idea how games are going to work, but the goal is to go back and be uh, – to get the plane back to 25,000 feet, 30,000 feet like we were on the way to doing uh, after being six months on the air. So I hope that answers your question. I, that's our goal. How fast we're able to do it is really going to depend on kind of how everything plays out here in the next, I guess, 60 or 90 days. I, I think anything that keeps Mark Packer in his basement has to be looked at as a positive. Um, Probably, yeah. Maybe he, not. <laughs> you know what, though? I mean, I will tell you, nobody's a creature of habit more than the Pac-Man. So, I mean, he's the – Man, that cat likes his 16-step commute every day, Dan. Yeah. As soon as y'all get back up and running, I'm going to call one day and tell you the story of the day he fell off the 10th green at the Anderson Country Club. I want that one. I want that one for sure. You yeah. Got, you got, the day he drug out the golf bag, I almost called. But yeah, well, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, there's going to be, at some point, my goal. I don't have many goals on that show other than to stay alive for three hours every day and not screw up math too much. Um, my goal, one of my goals is I'm going to get him on camera swinging a golf club and making contact with the ball. That's my goal. The guy has got a, an, an unbelievable golf swing. Yep. He would come to Anderson once a year. It's the only three rounds he played all year. Shoot 72, throw the bag in the trunk, slam it, see you next year. Yep. It's unbelievable. We uh, are disgusting. Yes, well, the, we, have, we have a producer who is uh, a producer who's a two handicap who is determined that we're going to take pack to top golf in Charlotte and we're going to have a camera and we're going to watch him uh, hit ropes all day long off the top golf and in, uh, in Charlotte. And if, and really, if it works out, we'll come to that one right next to 85 in Greenville. It always seems to be packed all the time. Holy cow. I drive by. I know. It looks I'm like they're giving stuff away down there. <laughs> I've been three times and never hit a golf ball. I mean, they're just, but you mentioned 10th green at Anderson Country Club and frozen peas and watch him break out in a cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, as we uh, we head into wrap up mode here, we're again visiting with with Wes Durham. We're about at the hour mark, uh, and Wes says, uh, as always, man, we appreciate your time. Tom, any any final questions? Any final thoughts for Wes? Uh, Wes, y'all know you've done uh, a million games. I just wondered if you had any who might be, and it's maybe a tough question. The best player in specific sports you've ever seen? Ooh. Um, or maybe the worst player in a specific sport <laughs> you've ever seen. <laughs> it's uh well tom it's hard for me to uh it's hard for me to separate calvin johnson three years at georgia tech and now 10 years of julio jones in atlanta yeah but that's a good list to start with um basketball wise um wow i mean i tell you what i I had a game one time on radio when we were still doing a lot of games in the ACC tournament where Harrison Barnes got 40. I think it was on Clemson Cobb, but don't get, don't correct me on that. <laughs> yeah. um, but Harrison Barnes was really good in college. Uh, I've never done an NBA game, so I can't speak to that. Um, I uh, Zion was spectacular. I um, he was a he was a show waiting to happen all the time, but. Um, I'd say Julio Jones and Calvin Johnson were, were were pretty unbelievable. Joe Hamilton at Georgia Tech was special for me because it was earlier in my career. Um, so th- those guys stand out for me because of just kind of the plays they made and the moments they gave you. But I- I've been fortunate. I I feel very blessed. The, the relationships that have come out of me doing ball games with players whose teams I broadcast for and. You know, I've got very good friends now who played football at Georgia, some that played at Clemson. Um, I feel very fortunate that, like, Carolina, a lot of the guys who my dad broadcast, when my dad passed away a couple of years ago, they have they come back to me a little bit, which has been really flattering to tell me what my dad meant to them. That's been, that's been kind of cool, and a couple of friendships have grown from it, too. I know you've got a million of them. I need your best Kremen story. Oh, my God. Um. Well, the best story I can tell you about Bobby Cremins is is that it required when I it wasn't the first road trip I went on with Georgia Tech when I started doing the games. It was like the second or third. I was told prior to the season starting there are really not many rules when you travel with Georgia Tech. They flew commercial all the time because Bobby knew that a Georgia Tech guy was the president of Delta Airlines, and Bobby somehow felt that flying Delta Airlines was helping Delta. Don't ask me why, but Bobby felt like if his team flew commercial, that helped Delta, and he wanted to support Delta because the Georgia Tech guy ran it. Again, use your own logic. Everybody else was chartering, and Bobby's getting on commercial flights at 5.45 in the morning, like an NBA team. Um, so the guy told me before we went on the road, he said, there are not really many hard pass rules. He said, oh, but by the way, make sure you have $10 in your pocket every time we travel. Okay, $10, no big deal. So about the third road trip, we're at Maryland, and Bobby comes up to me and says, hey, hey. I said, yeah, coach, how you doing? He says, you got $10? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got $10. He goes, let me borrow $10. Okay. So I gave him $10. Well, the guy that told me the story originally in the fall is on the trip, and I walked up and I said, hey, by the way, when you told me in the fall to always have $10, was that for Cremins? He goes, yeah. And I said, okay. And he goes, you're not getting that $10 back. 
And I go, what do you mean? He goes, Bobby never carries cash. I said, Bobby Cremins, who makes millions a year, doesn't carry cash. He goes, no, Carol and his wife won't let him. <laughs> and I said, so, so we're supposed to fund Bobby Cremins on these road trips? He goes, there's, there's probably tens of thousands of dollars that Cremins has borrowed from people in $10 increments. He's never paid it back. So I walked up to Bobby. I go, Bobby, I want my $10 back. And he goes, hold on, hold on. He went and asked another guy for $10 to pay me my $10. <laughs> I went, are you serious? So when they were nice enough to put me in the Hall of Fame a few years ago, I told Crimmins, come up here and get your damn $10. I mean, are you kidding? Unbelievable. Uh, Dory, final thought for Wes? Well, I just appreciate since I didn't answer the ACC network question the way she wanted. (laughs) Well, I mean, a little bit. I like the progression that things are going in a positive direction. I need a commitment. This is how I want to end it. I want a commitment from you that maybe it's Top Golf or maybe it's uh, a great steakhouse in the Carolinas. Can you do that? Give us a recommendation because the four of us are going to go tackle the old 96 or somewhere, or actually I'm going to do that. So what's the best place in the Carolinas for us to meet? Best place in the Carolinas to meet? For a great steak. Give me some hope oh, for the future steak. soon and very soon. Beside Halls and Greenville? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's Greenville. Halls in Greenville. Okay. Well, let's make it a date. Okay. How about this? How about Roosters in Charlotte is really good. Roosters is Roosters is more farm to table in Charlotte. And there's a real good chance if you come to Roosters in Charlotte, Packer and I'll be sitting there too. So that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's an added unintentional bonus for you. How's that? That sounds great. I'm going to find you. And I appreciate everything. And again, my dad, Billy Kidd, he's uh, since his well wishes. Oh, and that's great. Thank you. Just keep up with the integrity. Keep us old school, guys. Yeah. That's what I'm counting on. Okay? okay. You can do it. Wes, we could keep going, obviously, but I know you got things to do. Thank you for spending some time with us on this podcast, my friend. Dan, anytime. Uh, next time, make sure Cobb is not around. That'd be the best part of it. Well, uh, nobody uh, has better seats. Nobody has better seats than this Oxford. I was on my best behavior, and I gave you material, so I think yeah. I, I need a little credit. No, you did well. I, I was impressed that uh, that for a guy that sits on the floor and yells at officials all the time at Little oh, John, yeah. you behaved as well as you did. Jamie Lucky doesn't know my name, but he's told me. <laughs> he will now. <laughs> hey, speaking speaking of which, and this, this will I be wish the SEC had taken him instead of Curse. Well, speaking of which, and Cobb, you'll get a kick out of this. The Southern Conference just announced a, a new officials partnership, I think, with the SEC. But guess yeah. guess who's going to be the, the trooper? No, back. no, no, no. The head of uh, officials is going to be Mike Eads. Mike Eads. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, here's the problem. Cobb's never been happy with any officials. You're right. Exactly. So, and see, I go back. To, I go back to Lou Bello. <laughs> Come on. I mean, see, here's the thing. I've had pranks with Lou Bellow. But see, I mean, yeah. Tom, ben, Tom had this problem in the Big Eight years ago. You got problems in the ACC. <laughs> I mean, nobody's ever happy with officials. They're the only guys on the floor who lose every night. Right, exactly. Wes, parting, p- parting, 
parting shot, how far has Carl Hess fallen? He's been doing the occasional Southern Conference game, and I'll call Cobb when I see him when we're getting ready to broadcast a game. Is that the Stormtrooper is in the house? Stormtrooper is in the building. (laughs) And Wes is. We could go 100 years on this. Jim Hernjack. Never liked him either. (laughs) Lanny Works. Yep, that was the all-time classic. Lenny Works. And on and on and on. Wes, thank you. All right, guys. Take care. All All right. Right. Appreciate it. Take care. Guys, take care. All right. Well, guys, I, I think we we probably ended with Wes too soon, or we should have started talking officiating much earlier. <laughs> Anybody you like, Cobb, and officiating? <laughs> I don't like any of them. I mean, I, I tell Dan all the time, I said, Jamie Lucky sucked when he was officiating in the CBAC. So how in the world he ever got in the ACC, I'll never know. Yeah, well, I thought you'd get a kick out of Mike Eads now being the uh, the, the new head of officials for the uh, for the Southern Conference. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, they got a job to do. I did it one time, intramural ball. It's hard. You know, I'll admit it, but still – there's a there's a bias there that'll never that'll never go away. Yeah, I actually did the same. I became an official for high school in South Carolina in 2013, and Coach Bender at Clemson said I had joined the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a losing battle, and it is hard, isn't it, Cobb? It does give you a new perspective for sure. Yeah, you, call, you it didn't you still give him a hard time. I called three fouls on Steve Fuller in the first half of an intermediate <laughs> one time. You, I was lucky to get out of the gym alive. <laughs> yeah, you know, even in intramurals, you got to have a, a you know a, a hierarchy ranking, right? Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. and Steve was at the top, and you were at the bottom. Well, you just you call it like you see it, and when you call it, you call it loud. So that was. Never be meek about the call, or, or or like you think you see it, right? Exactly. So, something along uh, those lines. And by the way, you know who Mike Eads is replacing as a SoCon head of officials? No. One guy that you never you you didn't mention that was right in your wheelhouse, Mike Wood. Oh, I forgot about Mike Wood. He used to he used to promise. He knew the old guy who was ahead of the CBAC officials. And they were friends, and he promised him he'd do one game a year in the CVAC. And one year he came to Anderson. I can't even remember who we were playing. I think he blew his whistle one time all night. I'm like, where's this guy when Clemson's playing? <laughs> he, he collected his $250 and his box meal and left. Drove back to Hartford. He, 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 would, he would come – Ooh, that gives me cold chills thinking about Mike Wood. In 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 in, in recent years, you know, he would come to, to Furman or go, you know, all around the conference to quote unquote observe the officials. Oh yeah. He he would he would demand a seat on press row and, and he would yell at slash coach his officials from press row. It it, it was it, it, yeah, oh yeah, it was it was the most ridiculous thing that I've ever seen. He was yelling at the officials? There, there were times that he would reprimand his own officials for sitting right there on press row. Oh, wow. So. That makes me feel better about what I think about it. <laughs> you can have I'm that for free. That. Hey, it's good to have everybody together again yeah, for the first time in a couple of weeks. Good to see y'all. The people he's come across and the yeah. 
son, he's it's it's he's fun to talk to because he's got so many stories. I've been in a, a hospitality room where he gets going, and he's just it's story after story after story. He he, re, he needs to write a book sometime if we ever slow him down. But, it doesn't yeah, seem got, uh, doesn't seem like that's going to be anytime soon. No, it's not. Yeah, I don't think uh, he even said he doesn't want to document everything. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And and Tom, you're still uh, you're still passing your uh, your grade school courses there in homeschooling. And I got trouble with the compound sentences, but uh, we did a little Hamlet the other day to be or not to be, and then uh, we we're working on distributed properties this morning in math in sixth grade. So I'm I'm hanging in there. Great. Well, better you good. than so me. It, like a dad daughter Jeopardy, I'm good. Hey, Dan, really, really good interviews. I tell you, thanks for setting those up. The, the ones that you've had and West was great today. And, and so far, it's, uh, it's, it's been uh, been fun. And I think uh, I think pretty enjoyable for folks that will listen to it. They get and they have opinions and, and you know, there there's some tough subject to address. And, I, and it's, it's been fun being involved with this. Well, we're, we've been on quite a roll here. So let's just hope that the magic doesn't run out. You know, who's going to who's the next contestant or, or the next victim? On grumpy old broadcasters, yeah, we'll we'll find out. But thank all you guys. It's good to well, see I, you again. You as well. I for one have enjoyed hanging out with you, seasoned veterans of broadcasting. You guys are great. Thank you. And with that, we wrap up another edition of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Good to have West Durham. Thank him, the voice of the Atlanta Falcons and ACC Network, and so many other things. Uh, and then Cobb Oxford, Tom Van Hoy, Dory Kidd-Smith, the entire band together again this week. Uh, just a reminder again, we're brought to you by Todaro Pizza in Greenville, T-O-D-A-R-O, todaropizza.com is the website. They're back open for inside dining now. If you're in the area and if you're coming into the area, put them on that bucket list for must-have pizza when you get to the Greenville area. Also, don't forget the original upstate location in downtown Clemson on Sloan Street. And if you'd like to uh, uh, interact with us, many ways you can do that. The, the podcast is hosted on Podbean. You can follow us and leave comments there. iTunes, uh, iHeart, Spotify, Google Play, everywhere podcasts are available, so are we. You can leave comments or you can email me, thedanscottshow at gmail.com, and we would love to hear from you and get your feedback on what we've been doing. And if you're new to the podcast, go back and check out some of our previous episodes because, as mentioned, counting this week, our last five guests have been Jason Whitlock, Marty Brenneman, Dave Sims, Leo Mazzoni, and now Wes Durham. That'll do it for Episode 9 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters for the entire crew. Until next time, I'm Dan Scott saying God bless you and so long, everybody. (laughs) 